Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. My guest today is Michael Drew. Michael is the Chief Investment Officer at MGD Private. He is also a Professor of Finance at Griffiths University. This conversation today will talk about the fundamental underpinnings of a successful investment program from a governance perspective. Specifically, we'll look at understanding the nature of the investment problem, building a sound investment governance framework, the need to understand the mindset of a beneficiary to be a more effective fiduciary. We'll finally then wrap up and talk about the need to build a culture of risk awareness rather than just thinking about risk as being a number on a page. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So, Michael, I guess one of the places I wanted to start today was to think about, you know, what are the challenges of being a fiduciary as they sit typically at 30,000 feet? Um, And today we've also got this other added challenge, which is COVID, which has then stopped the ability of people to actually meet physically. Yeah, great question, Alex. I mean, fiduciaries really at the moment are trying to manage two sides of one coin. Uh, There's this important directional governance role that fiduciaries have, compliance, uh, investment policy statements, risk management, risk appetite. So much work being done on ensuring what we would call directional governance is being fulfilled during these stressful days of COVID. But as we've all learned post-Royal Commission, there's another side to that coin, and that's the relational governance. People, culture, uh, you know, making sure that folks do the right thing when we're not watching. So that's COVID certainly added to that in terms of how we as fiduciary bodies balance that directional governance um, with the key importance of, of relational governance as well. Yeah, one of the things that's so challenging today is that for typically for a a lot of funds, they've gone through a very fast process of actually getting up to speed because it's it's been such a change with the amount of flow that's come into so many funds. They've had to deal with more things and had to build almost these governance framework on the fly. Is that a pretty fair statement? Yeah, most funds have got really um, quite advanced governance processes, but as you correctly said, Alex, they've been under stress. So particularly the prudential standards regarding liquidity, liquidity cascades, liquidity management have certainly uh, come up the agenda for many fiduciary investors over the last nine months. And then you also add the fact that the investment outlook has got even more challenging at late, you know, we've got cash rates at extremely low levels. Um, inflation has been low for quite a while, likely to potentially pick up. Discount rates been highly compressed. You know, in this type of environment, you have very high convexity. Small changes are going to have very big impacts on a lot of these in asset classes and particular a lot of these new investment vehicles that are coming up, all these CLOs, for example. So how do you, you know, I guess, how do you communicate to a fiduciary how to understand so many moving parts? Yeah, and I think also um, understanding the nature, a real clarity of understanding the nature of the investment problem um, is critical in these times. When I started in my career in the early 90s, I could get clients a 7.5% expected return with cash and bonds and zero volatility. 
uh, early 2000s, we could get a similar sort of expected return of 7.5% with volatility in the high single digits. Today, to get an expected return of that sort of number, we're looking at you know 95% growth assets, half of that in alternatives, uh, and a volatility of you know in the team. So you're absolutely right. Um, the environment is far more challenging. The outlook is is muted. Uh, volatility is here. We having debates again about printing money and maybe the spectre of inflation. All that hasn't quite come to pass yet. So. This is really occupying, I would say, eight minutes out of every 10 of every sort of fiduciary investor's investment governance time. It is an amazing time when you think about alternatives, right? Alternatives historically was anything outside of debt or equity. Now alternatives is all sorts of other complex um, in- instruments and asset classes that are that are popping up. Now, you sort of wonder for a fiduciary, how do they actually manage all these different parts? There's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of uh, specification that they need to understand around some of these things. You know, They've got to manage that piece and then they've also got to manage the beneficiaries and, and explain it to the beneficiaries, which is the other challenge. How, you know, how do you then map that difficulty of being a good steward and fiduciary and try and hit a target outcome at the same time being able to manage for a beneficiary? Yeah, my, um, my dear co-author, Adam Walk and I, when we put together the monograph for the CFA Institute Research Foundation, really wanted to tackle this question head on. And, and we, make a, we make the case in the monograph that investment governance needs a budget. It needs to be stated. It needs to be quantified. And when we think about, as large asset owners, investment expenses, that has to be something more than just remunerating uh, investment managers. It has to be, you know, best practice systems, scenario testing, stress testing, liquidity systems. We need great custody and administration arrangements that give us really clean data that we can interrogate in a timely way. And it also needs a resourcing on the monitoring and review piece that we make sure that uh, you know, we're asking the right questions, interrogating that data and asking the right questions at the right time. And I think to the end of your, your point about framing that for the beneficiary is just so incredibly important. So understanding our members, understanding their fears at this time, uh, understanding the fact that, you know, there's a mindset of retiring on the Friday with a pot of gold and the great challenge we have to convert that to a retirement income stream on a Monday when, say, a five-year term deposit in the current world might be paying 90 basis points per annum. So there's an incredible human dimension to this, as well as uh, the framing in a way that's understandable of the retirement income liability. The other thing that keeps coming to mind in terms of actually communicating to members is that you know we've got this situation where you've got low cash rates and discount rates being, being low. Just that backdrop means that you've got high convexity you're going to potentially have very high volatility if there's any change in expectations so that challenge of then explaining to the beneficiary to stay the course becomes more and more challenging yeah i okay no it's a great it's a great observation it is and you framed that really nicely i i i'm really a, a strong supporter of the way we can use behavioral finance to help folks with mental accounting so really thinking through goals-based investing framework that understands 
liabilities and their duration, say out to sort of three, four or five years, and making sure that we're very clear that that is the priority for that pool of, that pool of funds to, to match or meet that liability, and then helping with some mental accounting or grandma's jars and thinking about sort of, you know, longer term post-retirement risks, um, inflation, aged care, a health event. Um, so for me, that kind of framing is really important in the current world that where we've sort of put aside a, a part of the corpus for the needs of, of the next, say, three to five years, and we can think about a more inflation, you know, CPI plus type objective, uh, and maybe even considering things like, you know, longevity and aged care, how do we make sure that we mortality update and understand that longer term liability as well? Um, as you know, Alex, um, we've got, you know, PhDs and professors and very smart people, Nobel Prize winners working on these things. Um, but the reality is, is that in a defined contribution system, the individual household bears much of that risk. So we need to really, as fiduciaries, help those folks understand and frame the sort of long-term risks that are before That's become even more challenging where you've also got the government that's come in and, and introduced early access, um, which was, again, another uh, constraint that the funds have to manage for and as they understand the liquidity requirements that they need at the same time as trying to manage for this long-term objective that, that the fund needs to needs to hit and as a fiduciary that becomes even more challenging because you're thinking I've got this target um, group of 35 year olds that I need to manage for and now I've also got these other factors that allow people to withdraw funds yeah yeah and look as the weeks and months have gone on and we've now into the you know 33 35 billion dollar mark of of early withdrawals there's some very serious questions to be asked about how that how those resources are being used What's the opportunity cost in terms of fundedness at retirement? And, you know, we all know as humans, uh, you know, we struggle with intertemporal trade-offs. So, you know, we're much more into the gratification than trying to think of our future selves, um, you know, in 20, 30 years' time. But um, those numbers will come to roots that, you know, there really needs to be um, some really clear thinking going forward about, uh, repair of personal balance sheets post-COVID versus how we think clearly about matching that long-term retirement income liability through time. So if we take it back to the actual, you know, the funds and the fiduciaries as they start with an investment policy statement, an SAA, and then move towards the actual investment decision-making process, you know, how has that had to evolve, would you say, over the last few years as we've seen you know, the, the backdrop of, of asset class expectations change? You've got now more regulation changes and we're learning more about behavioural finance as well. Um, you know, how are all those factors now moving or, or at least influencing the decision-making process for fiduciaries? Yeah, we can be negative about these things, but also um, I think sometimes we can we need to just acknowledge the fact that Australia now has, you know, one of the the largest pools of retirement saving in the world. Uh, Our processes and our institutional quality and governance in our large asset owners, um, our industry funds, our sovereign wealth funds, you know, really are a globally leading organisation. So I think in terms of um, part of a good news story is that the pooling that we do, the continued consolidation going on in the industry is allowing the best minds and a real fiduciary focus on 
setting up investment portfolios that are there solely to serve the beneficiary. Now, the challenge, as you said, all of that is that we are struggling now, next year, maybe the next five years, where the key liability hedging asset in retirement, you know, long-term bonds will either be zero or slightly negative. Um, so we really now are trying to think about what's the right mix of, say, uh, balance sheet-based solutions for our retirees, pooling-based solutions, uh, systematic withdrawal alternatives. So there's a really important piece of work that's coalescing now that really has to face the realities that the key liability hedging asset is marginally above zero. And that ultimately leads to some very difficult trade-offs and difficult conversations about expectations of, um, of, of, of standards of living um, going forward. One, one particular strategy you didn't address there, or I'm curious to get your thoughts on, is around using tail hedging. So continuing on with the higher equity component and using tail hedging as the ability to, to obviously smooth off those really large down uh, movements that we can see. Um, particularly given the struggle that it is to find returns in, in traditional fixed income and people have to take more risks, you know, is tail hedging or more absolute return style long short strategies going to become more prevalent? Yeah, um, and, and we've written on this and, and I've actually written a lot on sequencing risk and path dependency and these sorts of concerns. So you're absolutely right. Um, Non-linear strategies have a role in portfolios um, and have a different effect at different parts of the life stage. So part of the problem, as you know, for our younger cohorts, 25 and 30, we're probably not getting enough risk into their portfolios. But then in that sort of last decade um, before retirement, the average Australian accumulates about half of their wealth, half of their retirement savings in the last decade of their working life. And so the order of returns during that last decade is actually far more important than the average of returns. So things that we can do to build more robust portfolios that limit equity tail risk, um, things that we can do that ensure that asset allocation reflects life stage are eminently sensible in terms of um, how we think through that. And then the one that sort of has really worried me during COVID is the fact that we've had so many people across the economy uh, lose their jobs or be suspended or furlong, whatever's been the situation. Um, but we all know the literature and policy research shows us that it's that exact generation that's maybe in the last 10 years of their working life that find the highest levels of discrimination um, in the workforce. So that to me absolutely keeps me awake at night. And we've also written on things such as um, inequalities regarding gender and superannuation. Women live a lot longer than men. Um, and again, find these sort of uh, workplace issues come to roost during these sort of retirement years. So that's a long answer to the fact that there's important innovations we need to look at in the asset allocation, but we need to be absolutely aware of labor market dynamics, discrimination in the labor market, and some of the structural discrimination that goes on, particularly around women and super. 
Oh, look, there's a lot of issues for fiduciaries to manage um, and that you know, the conversation could go on for hours mm-hmm. down that path. But if we take it back more to the investment governance process, you, know, you mentioned a little bit about it. You know, funds don't have unlimited resources. They've got fee budgets. They've got time budgets. You know, let's think about you know, for a fund that has a governance budget, how do they actually allocate that governance budget given the amount of radical changes that you're seeing in the portfolio today you know, members members aside and, and those issues, but just as they think about the investment process and, and making sure that process is fit for purpose. Yeah, and look, what we tend to find is that one of the biggest challenges facing um, all large asset owners today is to make sure that they do see investment governance as a process. Um, it's not just are we doing things right, but are we doing the right things? And that's a very, very different question to make sure the committee is focused on ensuring not just things are done well, but we are doing the right things. So that leads sort of back to my directional governance and and relational governance concerns. The other one that I think is becoming incredibly important is investment principles or investment beliefs and how they align and are evidenced through the portfolio. So when we did the the monograph for the CFA Institute Research Foundation, we did some research on um, looking at actual investment committee agendas and they'll they'll have in their investment beliefs, we believe asset allocation drives, you know, the largest proportion of returns. Then when we have a look at their actual timing on their investment committee agendas, um, say 75% of that might be on manager selection. So I think it's important that we um, constantly challenge the model where we think through what's our objective? Does our policy then align to that objective and and those beliefs? Do we have clarity about that role setting strategy versus implementation below the fiduciary line? So executing, resourcing, implementing, and we're governing that process without conflict. And then as those returns come up, we, we superintend the whole process. And we use that superintend word very consciously, something more than just monitoring and review, but making sure we're superintending roles, responsibility, and ensuring that the system is, is governed in a holistic way. Do you have any uh, views around the, the, I guess, the use of time and the effectiveness of an SAA-style approach versus a total portfolio approach to construction does you know is there a governance um budget differential you know is it easier to to maintain one or the other yeah they've, they've both got both got their challenges um and and look um the most important thing that we tend to see is uh not that sort of either or thinking but sort of both and thinking so what worries me is when you see an saa based framework that doesn't coordinate neatly with the policy, the implementation approach, and the way it's evaluated. So for me, you know, a really important role of a fiduciary um, on a large asset owner is to actually distinguish between investment expertise and investment governance expertise. And making sure that the delegations, mission clarity, role clarity between those setting strategy and those undertaking the operational work uh, work in harmony and are continually governed. One other area that's popped up quite a bit of, of late is thematics in, in the investment idea because they feel that 
traditional SAA is just so hard. You can't find the diversification you're looking for, but to invest based on themes, you know, particular themes with automation or um, maybe it's something to do with climate or something to do with medicine. You know, what do you think about that and, and how do you embed that into an investment decision-making process? Yeah, so for us, that would start with the investment principles or beliefs that there would be something formally acknowledged about the role of thematics in portfolio construction. Then we would look inside the investment policy statement to understand how the parameters of that thematic process are governed, controlled, uh, resourced in the portfolio, and then a clear set of instructions and delegations to the chief investment officer and the, the underlying managers um, around that, that thematic process. And of course, as, as you know, Alex, time horizon is incredibly important with the thematic piece. So are we ensuring that the robustness of the evaluation is not sort of three months against peers with a sharp ratio, but rather, you know, a, a time horizon that is sensible and appropriate to the sort of the, 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 the life of the thematic. And unfortunately, you know, we all see this far too common that investment committees can get very excited about thematics, but then not put the resources into evaluating that process different to say, I don't know, a passive Australian equities manager or something like that. Mm-hmm. Look, it's a really interesting point that that thematic piece and the, actually the corollary then is the role of the, the, the CIO, the chief investment officer. You know, obviously a lot comes from them. I wanted to get your your thoughts around the role of the CIO and how that's changed of late and how you see it being different for different types of funds, you know, family office, super fund, sovereign wealth fund. Because just from looking at the industry super funds as one example, there's a huge differential between the CIOs that I see and speak to. Some are from a trading background, some are from a consulting background, others are from a, a manager allocation background. So I wanted to get your on your perspective on the role of the CIO and how you know they should lead a team and obviously a um, a fund effectively. Yeah, so I, th- I think you know the skills matrix of the, the fiduciary board and then obviously the uh, investment committee, making sure that that's done and really being clear with the skill set that's being leveraged on that governing board, then can really create the space, I believe for a range of CIOs and professional backgrounds as you've you've intimated. Um, That to me is the key thing, that uh, making sure we create the clear delegation, the right space, the the certainty around under stress, where the CIO can play, the size of that sandpit, and how they can keep the investment process nimble, uh, focused, responsive, and ensuring that there's the right team around them to support them, challenge them, and of course, like anyone, uh, making sure as best we can to stop out as much groupthink and blind spots, cognitive blind spots as we can. So there's sort of, that's an imperfect, that there's a bit of art and science in that. Um, certainly in terms of best practice, having a very well-developed skills matrix for the investment committee to make sure that they can appropriately govern the kind of process that's being led through the CIO's office. But what's really, to me, the best CIOs that I, I have the great pleasure of uh, calling colleagues or, or working with or governing, um, to me, have that beneficiary lens on every decision. So they have clear delegation. They're very, very clear on mission clarity, role clarity, and particularly under stress. They, to me, are such a critical gatekeeper 
of uh, the fidelity with which the organisation has with its beneficiaries. So there's as much a human element to that as, as there is a technical, a technical element to that. Who do you then see as being responsible for creating a culture of risk awareness, right? The, the whole idea of the fund is to allocate risk in the best best way they can. Uh, should that come from the CIO ultimately or, or is there someone else in the in the fund that, that should be doing that? Yeah, um, for me, it's very clearly from the top, from the trustees. Um, and that sort of becomes that, if you will, signalling to the organisation that we are very, very serious about our directional governance but we equally weigh the relational governance, culture, moral hazard, people, um, and, and really, you know, sort of that, that has to strongly come from the fiduciary body. And then I think where that, that lands is that that then permeates through the organisation in terms of its alignment. And it's important, um, as you're sort of intimating, Alex, that the CIO is the keeper of that culture across the, across the investment organisation but to me, um, the more I've sort of gone through this journey in my own career, um, the incredibly important role of the chief executive officer, the chief risk officer, making sure that the, the chief risk officer has a line of sight to say the chair of the investment committee and the CEO has a standing invitation to investment committee meetings and really creating a culture where um, risk is an enabler, not a speed bump. And that, and that to me is such an incredibly important piece of work that myself and many others have been involved in the last nine months is under stress, um, a really fantastic, well-resourced chief risk officer function um, can give a great deal of risk assurance to the fiduciary and ultimately to the benefit of those we serve. Let's let's stick on the topic of risk because risk, unfortunately, a lot of people see it as just a, a number on a page, a particular um, you know, point, right? And we've actually got a lot of um, formulas in finance that work around points. You know, we've got mean variance, got sharp ratios, Jensen alphas, so forth, that are all trying to to get point values. You know, how do we take risk from just being these point values to being something more? Uh, great, it's a great question. We've got a whole industry around that framing, so it's, it's important. There's no, it's no doubt about that. I mean, my my doctorate was actually on that topic on the performance of Australian super funds and using all of those metrics: Sharps, Jensen's, Gruber, Trainor, uh, information ratios to really do detailed quantitative attribution of of skill, and then that works really well to a point. Um, except um, what we don't focus enough on in finance courses uh, around the country and around the world is that in many instances, what's actually as important is wealth weight of returns. So, you know, we kind of teach and frame this stuff. You put a dollar in today, you fall asleep for 20 years and you wake up and there's an answer. Now, if there's no cash flow change during the 20 years, the order of returns is completely irrelevant. But the problem we've got is that people get paid fortnightly or monthly. And so there's a cash flow event every few weeks or 12 times a year. And so that creates the real need to have wealth weighted metrics as part of the governance process. So um, probability of shortfall, really important. Sequencing risk. So, you know, we know that um, a sort of, you know, a COVID-like month of March 
for a 20 year old, they'll probably have more money in their account at the end of the year, just by contributions, than a small amount of money being hit by the month of March in COVID. We know someone that's 64 years old, retiring in June, that's a very, very different money weighted impact. So that really is, you know, it's a huge challenge for the industry. It's a huge challenge for um, regulators. Uh, it doesn't fit neatly into a single A4 table sheet of paper, if I could put it that way. Um, we need to think about the life cycle of our beneficiaries, where they are on that life cycle, and how that order of returns impacts the outcome. And this, to me, requires a humbleness of CIOs, of boards, of trustees, that we need to acknowledge that investments are an input to the outcome. They're not the outcome. Uh, they might be for time-weighted returns, but ultimately for many beneficiaries, particularly in the sort of organisations we've been speaking about today, superannuation, sovereign wealth funds, family offices, foundations, what actually matters is the wealth weighted return. Do you feel that the industry's done enough in terms of the alignment of incentives to make sure that the, you know, the actual decision makers understand that process? Yeah, it, it, I, I believe so. And, you know, um, myself and, and colleagues sit on a range of, you know, REM committees and, you know, we're all kept awake at night on ensuring incentives and alignment is, is correct. Um, but I think the challenge is, to be honest with you, Alex, is that there's this sort of fuzzy area between um, large industry, large superannuation or large investors and then bringing that down to sort of the, the personal balance sheet. So, you know, I'd love to tell you that there was a, an industry out there full of fantastic ethical financial advisors. Um, we know that, that, that the Hain Royal Commission has suggested maybe that's not the case. Maybe there is some misadventure. But, you know, the things that have started to warm my heart, particularly over the, the COVID period, is the rise of fintech, the rise of framing, you know, online sort of framing if people nudge, helping people nudge into good decisions. So I don't would suggest for a minute we've got it sorted, but to me, um, FinTech, uh, Robo, these sorts of things are an idea whose time has arrived. One area that you didn't touch on, which I think is still very problematic, is peer relativeness. Ah, right. And and so how do you deal, you know, as a fund, as and a personal, you know, as on a personal note, if you're working at some organization, you've got your career, you've got career risk as well. How do you deal with those two issues in terms of the peer of the fund and you personally in in making sure that you are managing to, you know, your beneficiary's best outcome at the same time you've got the incentive personally? Um, I always tell this tongue-in-cheek story where I played first 11 cricket at school. Um, I was the best batsman on the team. I won all the trophies on awards night. We never won a game and my batting average was 17. Um, so, <laughs> you know, um, the issue of peers and peer relative work um, are, a, are a challenge, not just for this industry, but my schools, my hospitals, my university, and it tends to then boil the debate down to sort of the lowest common denominator, which then really reflects time-weighted returns. Um, Alex, the, the trustees that I work with and, and certainly had the pleasure of, of serving um, over the years um, are, 
are so deeply concerned about ensuring member outcomes are appropriate for the balance size, their risk appetite, and there's so much work done at a governance level to get those things right. Now, ultimately, um, the risk is that if we don't temper a peer-based only frame debate, we get the sort of Keynesian problem, and I'll paraphrase it, which is society teaches us, teaches us at a young age to fail conventionally. So I, I, think we're, I think we are now at a point in the debate where um, with the baby boomers sort of tipping into retirement, the tens of thousands of people moving from sort of either full-time to phased retirement or uh, into full-time retirement, uh, every trustee board around the country is deeply focused on thinking through how can we assist our members in managing these sort of longevity and post-retirement risks. Um, is the system perfect? No, but there are some very good uh, framing, nudging, behavioural finance tools that can sort of switch out this pot of gold thinking into long-term retirement income stream thinking. Let's, use, let's have a follow, uh, a wrap-up question. And, and that is, you know, we've had a huge amount of compliance and regulation that's come in because there has been a few bad actors in, in, in the system. You know, how do we take investment governance away from this compliance regulation-driven approach to really being, you know, an organic process that is, is aligned to, to members ultimately at the end of the day? Yeah, and that's really what the whole premise of the book has been is that um, the best investors that we've had the privilege of working with in our, in our careers um, see investment governance as a fortress, um, that a fortress is only as strong as its weakest link. So great governance bodies never feel the job is quite done. It always feels like there's something more to do. Um, but if, if fiduciaries leave the meeting feeling that, then that's a much better feeling than the governance document sitting on the shelf and not being opened with the dust sort of blown off until the next Royal Commission comes up. So you're absolutely right. Great governance is an enabler. Uh, studies around the world show that great governance can add 100, 150 basis points per annum to total returns, which in a low return world that we're in is incredibly important. It can stifle and stop misadventure. Uh, it can call out quickly the bad actors in the system. And what I think is really important though, is that as we've seen with COVID, um, just the incredible privilege that we're in as fiduciaries in stewarding other people's money. And that to me ultimately is um, the great privilege of the role that, 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 that many of us are in, in terms of being a fiduciary, but, but also um, represents the call um, to continue to strive to improve our governance practice. Mm -hmm. All right, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you very much for your time today, Michael. Thanks, Alex. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.